static end state solutions are not necessarily going to be able to cope with the pace at which our country is growing our cities are growing we have to design for the transitions hello and welcome to the season 2 of understanding the future i am your host punit gandhi and climate center for cities is excited to bring to you a podcast about the future of work in the field of climate change urban development sustainability and innovation we will talk to experts working on ground as well as in the top management of government and non-governmental organizations to better understand how the field looks like in future this will help us in preparing to enable climate actions as well as gauge the type of skill sets and jobs that would be required in future to solve complex challenges if you are listening to it for the first time do tune into season 1 Hello and welcome to season 2 of Understanding the Future. I am your host Punit Gandhi and today we have with us Rushal Pallavajjal. He is the founder and CEO of Bandhu Urban Tech. He will help us better understand the topic of migration and climate change. Welcome to the show Rushal. Hi hi Punit thanks thanks for having me here it's a pleasure to be speaking about this very very critical issue. Let's start with the first basic question is uh what is the root cause of migration in india why is there i'm assuming uh, i'm seeing that some statistics put that around 14 million people move every year or am i wrong on those statistics uh yeah so the statistics yes uh, i mean that's it's put that as a conservative number but the official figures would usually be close to that 14 or 15 million unofficially i mean depending on who you ask they could say it's as high as i mean at a very least 150 million oh, wow. uh, but it could go up to 300 million i think the last census perhaps put it at close to anyway, i'm i'm not 100% sure on this but it's definitely much more than 15 million so we we okay. for our purposes for we take a figure of 150 million at the very least okay okay and that's that's a huge number per se and that's almost 10 to 12% of your, our population uh, so wh- yes, what is the root yes. cause of this migration uh, in india so again there are a lot of you know migration scholars and studies that have been done over the past i don't know century i'd say uh, not just in india but in general you know migration talking about it from push factors pull factors and things like that and i think both contribute i mean to really start from the bottom we talk about push factors which is typically distress rural distress so you know that that's what we see in india and pull factors of course uh, you know wage differential or you know simply put how much more can i earn in a city compared to a village there are all these economic terms right the marginal productivity of labor being close yeah. to zero and you know, like that so uh, in india of course we've seen patterns of see land is of course a limited uh, commodity you can't generate uh, new land forest areas are protected and increasingly i mean as farm sizes keep getting smaller you know because larger families intergenerationally acreage keeps getting smaller farming starts to become more and more unsustainable i mean we've all these other things about you know what percentage of rural areas still have rainfed agriculture climate change of course is now playing a major major role and you know in the past around the as the green revolution we also made a push towards 
monocultures will boost productivity and again there are several conversations around that whether monocultures uh, you know put agri small agri uh, producers at a high risk compared to you know if you had a diversified cropping so climate change because monocultures are very very susceptible uh, you tend to stand to you know gain high or lose all so i mean there are variety of different things all the the push factors some of the other push factors related to pull factors is of course the rate at which you know wages have grown in urban areas Okay. and including things like you know the manrega that came in uh, about yeah. 15 years ago it effectively increased what the minimum wage was in the village right with the, the guaranteed employment at a certain wage and i know from experience that uh, in, in construction sector in the city where a large number of rural folk would migrate to or skilled workers they they saw a 4x 5x kind of a jump immediately so everyone now in the village says okay if there is this opportunity to be gained why shouldn't i go and gain that and typically families that would do that would have multiple sons you know typically they would send one or two sons to the city to try and gain that higher urban wage the other kids would stay back help with the farm so while there is one which is absolutely distress driven which is you know landless farmers or uh, you know contract labor on farm and things like that yeah. who think that farming is absolutely nothing beyond then getting your basic anaj for the year there's another crop which says that let's get that basic done but the opportunity is in the city yeah so you kind of have a dual existence so these are all the things which are of course you know fueling uh, our rural to urban transition and i mean the bottom line here is that rural is rooted in agri and yes. uh, you know there are humongous inefficiencies and things which i see a lot of agri tech startups now coming into so all that so we don't know if things uh, get you know change at all and in the new farm laws yeah uh, coming to one of the points that you just mentioned on lines of wages uh, is that considerable jump compared to their living standards in urban area when they shift to urban area or is it just a number that looks big enough but eventually uh, it does not happen that much so yeah this was precisely what i try to measure through my thesis at mit people they they would typically migrate through chain migration or word of mouth social connect saying that if my uncle is there he found me something let me go there but you know based on our statistical analysis we found that though people were making a gain in terms of the sheer difference in wages yeah but when you come down to calculating how much you actually saved for that effort it wasn't necessarily uh, you know proportionate okay so that that's that is exactly the problem we want to solve so that you know migrant workers or you know rural citizens before they choose to migrate they know exactly how much they'll be able to send back home or save at the end of it yeah and also there's an another point that uh, yes there are families who generally have more than one son try to send at least one son out uh but that what happens to the female population like because if they are getting married they would generally come with the son to the city or would they just work on farm and help the family how would that proportion function if the census records this a humongous number of migrants are recorded as moving for the purpose of you know marriage or family yeah. so women migrants are always you know accompanying a spouse or family and things like that i mean women rural women perhaps still don't have that agency to migrate the way men do did i answer the uh, question yeah that? yeah so, so uh, then i'm assuming that that 
women also move as much as with uh, the men move but generally that is post marriage and not just yes. for the employment cause yes yes the only a very rarely found cases i mean that not that don't exist where a group of girls will go and work in a larger city but usually such people are a little better educated you know they aren't your absolute menial construction labor so they would go perhaps work in a retail store you know as sales girls they would get a job uh, as you know telecalling agent or something or you know or in a lawyer's office as a clerk they typically be 10th or 12th past at least okay. and are able to do this kind of work which and because they don't have jobs in villages once they were once educated that much okay okay so that brings me to the question that uh, then i feel somewhere it's better for women if at least they are educated to find something in urban area than to stay back in rural area yes yes i think uh, but again it's very location specific uh, but given given how our society is structured in more cases than not uh, women have will have lesser agency okay to uh, you know maximize their education and their skills in a village uh, unless yes, they become yes. agri entrepreneurs or something of that sort yeah. okay what what are the major source of work that they find in urban sector construction is one they that does have like almost 10 to 12% of our gdp as well that construction caters to and they are the one of the biggest employers of uh, migrant laborers but apart from that what other kind of uh, work do they generally end up doing in any city so we talk about the same group i mean and it's a very often quoted statistic that agriculture is the biggest employer in the country and after agriculture comes the construction sector uh, and so construction is a very so to follow the same logic it's it has the least barrier to entry for uh, unskilled or semi skilled workers and even the semi skilled it's easy to to pick up so of course that that's that's the most obvious thing if you're not very educated textile also comes somewhere uh, close to that but beyond that it's a bunch of various different services that you know aggregate to form another small fraction and that's that's pretty much it but of course there's very little reliable data that we have in the country about how this is and of course no real time data but if you're slightly more educated i mean now we know the moment you have a driving license it's very easy to become a partner in one of these uh, gig delivery yeah. kind of thing a lot of people come in and you know join as seeing i mean office peon household help you know things like that not household help in the conventional sense but a lot of these large companies manufacturing of course also absorbs a lot of people but of course nothing nothing rivals construction as of now i'd say the most common thing you see people doing these days is taking up stuff like uh, you know security guard and things like that if they're not very educated because construction is a fairly it's labor intensive it's hard work and not everyone necessarily wants to jump into it yeah so there is as much in the sector of um, uh, security guards as well that you are saying now that's picking up no 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 nowhere close nowhere close i think it's minuscule all of these things are minuscule when you add them up they can perhaps come to some percentage of the construction employment but nothing compares to urban construction sector okay but again these are reports which uh, you know i don't have off hand but yeah one could uh, pick them up yeah yeah i can i can uh, imagine it's that is 50% uh, let me put it that way is 40 to 50% of people migrating to cities for seasonal work are employed in construction 
Okay. So people are migrating more permanently, sorry, people migrating more permanently for long, more long-term stuff are usually better educated and will typically occupy a higher skill segment. Ah, okay. Uh, so yeah, that, that, that is where I was coming to next as well, was on the seasonal migration. And there are, uh, so what is the ratio that we are looking at and why do they go back so often to their home as well if they are migrating here for work? So seasonal, I mean, seasonal for a reason, usually it's tied to agricultural cycles and a lot of people just come to the city in the agricultural off-season. And the agricultural off-season, of course, depends on the the soil, the climate, whether you have permanent irrigation or not. Is it only rain-fed agriculture? How many crops you get in a year? There are all these different uh, variables. Uh, And of course, for everyone, I think it's very important to underline this. Everyone still values their social capital in the village very, very high. Okay. And they want to hold on to their ancestral land because if no one is looking at the land, they're scared someone might take it up, you know, someone might kind of take over, might get encroached. So yeah. uh, they want to go back for every wedding. I mean, that's typically the story you will hear, you know, saying I have a wedding in the family. And because communities are so closely linked, these things are very important. So in fact, when I was doing my study for my thesis, these are the two variables I hedged that what is the loss of social capital versus how much is a wage gain? And uh, loss of social capital, I think, thought was best measured by are you able to get back to your village with an overnight journey or not? So that's usually five to 700 kilometers in India. Yeah. Because this is a death. There's anything you want to be back in five, seven hours. You want to be back to your... Typically, most migration clusters that see seasonal migration would like to see stuff like this, you know, would typically happen in closer ranges. Of course, you see longer range trends also, but more often than not, you will, you know, so for example, Gujarat, Ahmedabad, the entire South Rajasthan tribal belts, you know, you'll see, you yeah. go further down to Ankleshwar, Dahed, Surat, you'll see again tribal belts from the MP Gujarat border. Okay. So, and those are the guys who are pretty much dependent on uh, rain-fed seasonal agriculture. Okay. Uh, can very quickly, you know, within two, three hours get to a large city. And Mumbai's case, you see the number of migrants who come from Ratnagiri. Okay. Right? So it's all pretty much directly connected to transport corridors within uh, fix, you know, that specific travel time. Okay, okay. And uh, But that again puts them at the loss somewhere that uh, while they are trying to build here the economic know-how and economically they want to do well here, but because the social capital is hooked over there, how do they try and manage that kind of uh, scenario? Because they would also lose out on a lot of opportunities while they are gone. Sorry, do you mean losing opportunities in the village? Uh, no, not losing opportunities in the urban area. So while they have come to any urban area and they going back frequently also leads to, while it helps them retain the social capital, but their economic capital is going down there. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a case, uh, you know, I was talking to industrialists in uh, the Bharuch, Ankleshwar area, and they said they've stopped preferring to hire locals from Gujarat, you know, tribals who come from within 400, 300 kilometers, because they keep going back and, you know, it breaks the supply chains, it breaks their manufacturing lines. So they started to prefer people who come from further off, you know, like, Uttar Pradesh, Bihar, Chhattisgarh, no, people who are at least you know, 1, 1,500 kilometers away who find it uh, inconvenient to keep going back home. So there's automatically a preference the industry has built up. And uh, I mean, yeah, so these are the 
and these are the obvious things you see how the markets also respond but at the end of the day i mean you still can't deal with people as homo economicus right not everyone that's not the only metric that people choose so i mean that and again that depends on communities on various you know various different parameters so well that, that that's how things are second thing they do lose out on is uh, i mean if they're not stable one reason they also keep going back is because they don't find stability in the city uh, they would be stable if they're able to bring their family especially their kids to the city and put them into a better school because everyone does aspire for better education for the kids you know people are paying much more than they can afford for private education in several cases we've seen and i think that's something that you know let's say has been sold well as an idea to them that education is very important yeah. uh, and of course cities offer that you know a lot of villages you still have where you only can go up to class 7 to if you want to study up to class 10 you have to go to a neighboring village and up to 12 another district center and things like that so things stopping them from urbanizing permanently is access to stable affordable housing that they can get because that you know fixing that location is something that enables a lot of other things to happen yeah okay uh, so that 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 is quite interesting because uh, le- that's good to see that education is still somewhere they are also giving some kind of priority to and they would like their kids to be well off in the future how can this migration uh, so migration while we are talking about climate change is one of the essential things that we cannot look off it because disaster prone migration has increased a lot in india as well especially we can see in last couple of years where cyclones and floods have hugely migrated it uh, so where do we come and how can we uh, is there is it possible like i am not even sure if we can solve it but is it possible to balance it out is it possible to you know have a better system for it what, what can be done on those lines so i mean when you talk about balance uh, i don't know if it's how much of a malthusian idea it is but the fact is that our cities are overburdened you know urban uh, let's say policy makers planners managers have no idea how many to design for when to design yeah. you know so demand tends to be fairly uncertain when it comes if you can't handle it i mean you have cases where uh you know cities have run out of water literally i mean in this case in yes. chennai you know recently you have cases where mumbai is struggling with you know its its local trains are running at multiple times the approved capacity to build new structures you have to actually cut through forests or to build new routes through the sea uh, right that's where we've reached and you would question if that the most sustainable way for cities to grow and uh, so one i mean one very obvious answer that keeps coming up is that uh, if people socially like to remain where they are you know back to their back to their communities how do they find employment and i think this was again another study i had done by that mit that agri business was had the highest correlation with uh, income you know higher incomes districts with higher incomes in india so and i mean some of these things also correlated with uh, what we've observed in the past 7 or 8 years you know right from uh, the fluctuation in food prices right you could go from in the retail bulk or retail price and go from anywhere you know tomatoes used from 5 rupees to 100 rupees in a matter of a few months you know that was the kinds of hedging that was and of course a lot of it is to do with 
our supply chain. So in the last few years, you've seen how, you know, rural cold storage things have suddenly became a very fast growing asset class almost for the real estate uh, uh, sector, you know, investors in that agribusiness startups are really picking up. Now, I mean, the farm laws are kind of trying to talk about the same point about market rationalization of prices. Um, there's a lot of hedging going on between how quickly can you get a perishable product out of the storage the supply chain. So I think if you can add, make a lot of value addition in agribusinesses at source uh, and raise incomes, I think that would see a tremendous uh, you know, retention in source areas and perhaps lesser burden on cities. But again, when I ask you question, you know, water tables and things like that, for example, where the DMIC goes through the corridor, a lot of the areas, there is a big concern about how stressed the water table is, you know, how on a hundred year kind of projection, how prone they are to climate change risks and things like that. Uh, I mean, any any major industrial hub diverts a lot of water, fresh water from uh, what could go to some other things. So I mean, there are several, several parameters to look at. So, you know, the locations in which you uh, identify these kind of agribusinesses or, you know, rural, closer to rural kind of opportunities. What is the kind of catchment area? Uh, what is the kind of infrastructure and logistics things you need to set up? So I, I guess that is perhaps a way to go if you uh, do not want to have the unpredictability and overburdened cities. No, absolutely. That's that's true. And uh, this is one of the major, pro- uh, because they generally come in, they do not have that much of capital. Uh, so more and more slums are also formed, which again, causes stress in the city in some format or the other. And it's, it's not that they are also living the best life that they could live while they are here. It's something they need to do it because they need money. Uh, that is one of the major reasons. But do you think while we develop that kind of economy for them and uh, we try to do such things, technology can be an enabler here because they are, they might still not be, I'm not sure, like, I guess you are better to guess over here that how will they adapt to technology? Can they do that much amount of technologically heavy stuff? What What is your thought on that? By technology, do you mean uh, access to things like uh, mobile phone apps? You're talking more about machinery and things like that. Uh, so access to mobile is uh, surely one thing, but it's also with, even if they have access to mobile, can they learn it in a way that, uh, you know, that, okay, this is the weather, this comes in over here to them uh, for their agricultural purpose. This is the kind of uh, pesticide we are looking for or herbicide we are looking for. So I'm not sure what kind of uh, access to technology they already have and what can, even if given, can they learn that kind of uh, things which will help them flourish in a better way economically? I mean, perhaps I'm not the best person to talk about how uh, agriculturists use that kind of technology. I mean, there are lots of agri-tech startups who are doing stuff similar to that. But based on our work, what we can see is, yes, there's greater penetration of technology with a younger age group okay. who are usually also better educated and can operate it because typically people above 34, 35 see very low rates unless you know they uh, have had education. We see very low rates of you know adoption of technology like mobile platforms and things like that. And I mean, in certain areas, of course, Connectivity is a major issue. I mean, you go to certain parts of Odisha, 
you still, you know, most of the things you don't get data, uh, you don't get your mobile phone towers. So uh, I think that should also change. In every case, I think right from falling data rates, falling mobile phone subscription rates, by rates I mean price, the younger generation being a little better educated, more savvy with, uh, you know, using smartphones, I think this should change around. And I think you will see greater and greater adoption of, you know, the kinds of technologies that we're already looking at, you know, future technologies uh, that are mass delivered through things like mobile platforms and stuff. Okay. And uh, so bringing in the work that you do over here and connect the employer and employee, how is that? So so that also builds up their capital in terms of not just economic, but uh, I guess because you guys have a rating system and all helps them in a better way. uh, How does that function? And how does, uh, how are they responding to it uh, on those lines? See, I think people who are using technology are fairly familiar with rating systems. And I think this is something which is a legacy that has come in the last uh, decade or so of um, people using platforms like Ola, Uber, and now Swiggy. Like every Swiggy delivery boy, you know, you'll know, he'll tell you, give me a good rating. So I think people are sensitive to ratings. They're scared that, oh, my rating might go down and incentives might go down. So I think that's definitely, uh, it's become a language that's understood commonly. Again, the construction sector, it's very, very early days of people, you know, because there's no product really in the construction sector and things like that. And we are dealing with people who are generally lower on the education spectrum. So it's a harder challenge than it is in the, you know, the service sector, the you know, logistics sector. Uh, but it's definitely something we are seeing picking up. Of course, the employers love it, right? Because lack of standardized metrics to hire at bulk has always been an issue that industry has complained about. Yeah. Access to skilled workers, knowing whether I'm get, giving the right price to the right kind of person. Both ways, I think people will, I mean, demand and supply side, both side people will, you know, kind of be more and more keen to see this spread. Okay. So that that sounds at least promising enough for uh, that. Hopefully, technology will help them as well as uh, people who are employing them, because that is eventually better for the whole ecosystem over there. And in terms of climate change, uh, while there is a push, agriculture is highly affected because of unseasonal rains or heavy rainfalls in short term and things like that. Uh, there is also now a threat for them in urban society because uh, majority of slums or uh, low uh, affordable housing are in areas which might not be absolutely habitable. So I, I'll say that they are closer to somehow areas which might get flooded or something or the other, specifically slums, I'll say. So how do you think that response will now take place? Because that is where... Now the next set of problems we foresee that as climate change happens and happens in urban areas as well, they are the first ones to get affected again. So how how do you see that something like that can be uh, solved? Uh, I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right on that. Uh, the supply of urban land is the biggest problem that we have in cities, especially for housing, and invariably uh, the worst land in terms of uh, you know water collection or whether the former lake, literally those are the kinds of lands where low-income things happen. 
But in terms of how is that going to change? I mean, it, it's it's a really hard one to answer because even if governments go out and say that we will not have anyone build here, the reality is there's so many slums which are technically called untenable, and they're practically built on a riverbed or on a lakebed. You know, lakes that perhaps fill in have a once in a fifty year kind of uh, cycle. The second thing, which of course happens, is the infrastructure and how we build it, which very often disrupts uh, how water flows across a landscape, and very often it becomes like a almost like a check dam, which encourages water collection on one side of a road and things like that. I think is a very very common issue. So I think the real way to solve it will be to start taking a more I know data driven high level approach to how we are building. I mean, of course, one looks at you know the topography and things like that, and which are the likely places for uh, let's say uh, so called illegal slum aggregation and things like that. I think we need to start preempting a lot of these things. Start preempting where growth will happen based on where economic opportunities are being generated, and ideally be able to connect those things with. Solid trunk infrastructure or transport, which maybe this place is like a 15 kilometer zone outside a city, but it's well connected with transport, and we need to actually then, ideally from an urban planner point of view, leave out certain chunks as completely untenable for any kind of construction. Maybe talk about green belts. I mean, these ideas and concepts have been around for very long from an urban planning point of view, because implementation becomes uh, very very hard. So yeah, as I said, there is there is no easy solution to responding to climate change because all of these lay increased burden on municipal governments increased burden on you know need to find land supply of land supply of land can only come from what is currently agricultural becoming converted to non agricultural and that is a constant challenge uh, you know so you've seen in andhra for example they were talking about land pooling and things like that you know where an economic uh, thing was thrown to kind of take land and offer service land which is much more valuable so i think of course inventive financial methods or you know land uh, let's just call it land restructuring methods definitely one way given that's the most you know difficult resource and of course of late we've been seeing governments have predominantly relied on land based financing for urban infrastructure and urban growth so whether land value capture in that sense You know whether it be TDR, be it uh, you know impact fee, be it selling FSI, and so on. I think one thing that could definitely come in, I think, is understanding real estate markets better and be able to learn how to financially gain from it. You know, for example, the U.S. tax increment financing is a fairly popular thing where uh, you transfer the burden of, let's say, the market speculation. to the person or to the de- the developer or the company that's coming in to build and effectively the government has zero costs at that point and are pretty much writing that off based on a future tax escalation so in a way the market kind of takes the risk the market gains in the long term and uh, effectively it it allows for uh, you know much faster much more efficient deployment of capital and uh, better cities Yeah, thank you. That that's quite insightful on those lines. So, uh, are there any best case practices or uh, something on the international level as well? Because I'm assuming this is not the problem that only India faces, and this is everywhere in the world. Uh, so, any ways that these things have been managed and these things have been 
just manage. I'll I'll just put it that way. Again, it's a very hard one, and I think I keep coming back to how inventive finance, you know, tools or policies are the way. So, I mean, if I take the case now, this is a very controversial thing. Uh, I take the case of Boston, for example. You know, sea level rise is a major issue there. We've actually seen where there's a massive parking lot by the sea, and the water came in in the winter, and it froze, and there were cars stuck in ice for you know a couple of weeks, and you know, it's a pretty crazy uh, situation that is being hit by polar vortexes much more often. And the government's response is, you no, know, they don't say let's ban building in the seaport district because the seaport district is the fastest growing financial hub, the you know, new age. A real estate hub in the city and the government gets tremendous tax revenues from there. So they, they won't want to stonewall it. But what they're actually doing is literally walling it. So they've been able to, you know, come up with this idea of creating a sea barrier, which is a humongous infrastructure estimate. Not almost like preventing the waves from coming in by building a massive concrete thing. And uh, it is extremely expensive, but they know it can be easily funded based on the real estate growth that is expected there. Right, so yep. they may say economically is justified. We have a, an engineering solution to climate change, and this might last for some maybe a 50 or 70 or 100 year projection, and then we'll see. Whereas I know a lot of MIT professors came out very strongly against these kinds of things, saying uh, most of Boston would get flooded. And we know uh, Boston was never, most of Boston, in fact, as we know today along the edges, is all landfilled. So whenever they did it, they knew it was going to be flooded. Much like Bombay, you know, it's pretty much artificial yeah. land made around. So as long as they know the financing is coming in, they will come up with engineering solutions. And of course, ecologically, it may or may not work. Then you have to kind of do micro planning, you know, upstream, literally upstream and see what to do. The other thing one talks about is if you do not want to go in for heavy engineering solutions, can we talk about disincentivizing unsustainable or non-green infra and whereas invest in what is green infra, you know, talk about green bonds and things like that. Again, it's about inventive financing. It's about, uh, you know, putting high regulatory costs on certain kinds of behaviors because the only way, the only way really to do it is to make, you incentivize the markets to do it. You know, so another project which I'm remembering again in the US is where, uh, you know, how do you treat, how do you treat the edges along rivers? Because there's yeah. suppose a river or a channel that's going across multiple cities. If each city starts to decide what they want to do with it, it's going to have an ecological mess. I mean, there's a variety of reasons why, you know, there was so much of conversation around the Sabarmati uh, riverfront and, you know, essentially bringing up yeah. the water here and things like that. So, I mean, some cases, of course, internationally are talking about how do you allow that uh, thing? How do you have a certain set of rules that your banks have to be permeable? This is a certain kind of infrastructure, public recreation that has to come around it. So it is not a city-based plan, but it is a plan that is shared across six cities along that river and the decision-making comes from the state. I mean, of course, Korea also, we know very well, the Cheongechon project, where they literally opened up an ancient stream which had been built over, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this, so, but it had been built over by a major highway and then multiple layers of flyovers and they finally demolished all those layers of flyovers and uncovered the stream which has now become a major recreational hub in the city. And even their policies for how to go around along the riverfront or how to manage the riverfront is not a one-time solution that says, let's apply this uniformly for every localized zone around the river. They have a certain kind of idea of what is the need of that area, what is the best technological intervention. 
if it's a greenfield site if it's a brownfield site how do you go about it so i'm guessing a lot more attention to detail rather than you know one size fits all solutions have been the other way to intervene again it all keeps coming back to how is it financed how is it funded who's funding it to the central funds local funds how are they raised you know what's the cost of capital uh, so anyway so I, i keep coming back to saying inventive financing okay okay yeah but it it does look like that uh to solve this this is one of the migration is one of the problems which is ingrained in the real estate as well in some format or the other and that that does bring it to the point that how how do we manage our resources in a better way uh, so coming coming to one of the final questions that we generally uh, come around is what are the different kind of skill set required to work in this area because this area seems to be much more complicated than normal because it's a lot of social or societal uh, context to it but then there is a lot of work that also happens directly in our day to day life so what kind of skill sets do you feel are important to work in this field and help in this field uh, by by field you mean climate change uh, uh, or migration in general yeah migration in general i mean see, conventionally migration has been seen from a you know rights perspective you know labor rights human rights poverty alleviation so of course there is that whole development uh, you know non profit or the whole big ngo sector labor oriented ngo sector that's active now the moment you start talking about uh, employment now again the various pieces to it right i mean you can talk about urban planning you can talk about livelihood generation you can talk about healthcare education so it is these are all the needs and i think each of those depending on which of those fingers or which of those aspects you address there are specializations right now when you talk about absolute basic needs related to urban development you know it is i mean that's what our hypothesis our thesis is that it is employment and housing these are the two things and so again from a very very personal perspective i felt you know having trained as an architect and then an urban planner and then kind of specializing even more in uh, real estate and you know real estate finance i thought finance was definite for any urban development professional i thought understanding of finance and the investment kind of points of view is very very critical you know this includes public finance which is you know how do governments raise money how do they manage their money how do they regu- regulators become very very important because regulation is in a way one way to make money without actually investing in it you know you ban something and you take an impact feel like or you disallow or you allow fsi things like that so i think understanding of public finance urban finance super critical second is what are the sources of capital so i think that i for example was took classes on impact investing on public finance and a lot on private equity investment in the urban sector and then again so these days you talk about you know blended finance how do you given the size of the project and things like that and how does of course a private equity investor think because at the end of the day if there is always something called need but how does need become demand and uh, when because when need becomes demand markets will rush to fulfill that yeah and i think that's also the hypothesis that the omidya network started in back you know the peer omidya uh, the famous conversation that you know that's talked about so i think that's definitely a skill second i mean one cannot underscore enough a basic skill set in knowing how to use technology and 
because data, I mean, data is everywhere. Big data pretty much is available with, uh, and there are so many insights you can generate from that, which you could earlier. I mean, you always had remote sensing and things like that in the urban sector, but now you know, people are deploying machine learning to remote sensing and several other, you know, GIS kind of uh, applications. So that is definitely one set of tools. If you're not an expert and at least know what could be deployed, what are the data, data sources available, what are the insights and learnings that could be brought from it. So, uh, you know, some of our work, let's say consulting work that we did as students for certain governments, we tried to bring in expertise in data science, in GIS, accompanied with the, with the expertise in investment and finance, pretty much underwriting you know, large investments or, you know, something for the city. So how do you bring those three things together? Big data, uh, how does an investor think? And then this expertise in machine learning and GIS. And this for us seems like the frontier that could you know, majorly transform how uh, we manage climate change for, for large, you know, cities or geographies. Thank you. That was quite... Uh quite a good comprehensive review of what all things would be required for skills, uh, specifically on the skill set lines. Any points if I have missed out and you would like to cover in this sector, that would be, you can take it as right now. I can't really think of too much uh, off the cuff, uh, but I think the only point I'd like to underscore here again is uh, while as policymakers, as planners and you know architects, any built environment professional, we are always looking at end state static solutions. For example, saying so many people are coming, we're going to build housing for them. And I think we've learned, of course, in the past couple of decades that static end state solutions are not necessarily going to be able to cope with the pace at which our country is growing, our cities are growing. We have to design for the transitions because nothing else, people are constantly in transitions. Of course, everyone hopes to get to a steady state end solution, but can we help the transitions better? And I think that is critical to climate change uh, because things are going to change very, very quickly and constantly. Yeah. And how is so, you know, when you talk about future of work, just to kind of give a corollary to that, talk about future work, future of work, you always talk about how when a new technology is introduced, you see, you know, the growth curve first will decline because people are adapting to it. And then it starts to pick up after people have made that transition to new technology. It helps boost things faster. Now, with climate change, you're possibly going to be thrown with the need to constantly reinvent constantly. That means our productivity, our ability to get out of it is constantly going to be at a decline. So unless we focus only on the transition to begin with, uh, the long term is constantly going to be in question. Yeah, yeah, I, I... I absolutely agree with you over there. We we have to be constantly innovative in whatever approach we take. Otherwise, we will not be able to sustain uh, the constant change that nature will throw us throw at us. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for example, the AHRC was perhaps a great initiative to begin because you realize the need for housing is not necessarily permanent and permanent in that place, and rental housing actually does offer. A zone for transition. You know, it's not like a migrant just came to the city, let me give him a free house. Perhaps he can live on rent for three or four years at nominal rent, get into the urban economy, get a stable wage. And then at that point, perhaps he, you, you've enabled him to access or own property 
whether it's off market or it's affordable under the government so i think those are the kinds of initiatives and yeah i think technology is definitely going to bolster the cause yes absolutely thank you so much for taking out time and interviewing with us it was absolutely a delight for me to understand this topic in a better depth than i knew of uh, and thank you for taking out time roshan thanks it was it was a pleasure and i hope uh, i didn't ramble on too much <laughs> uh, <laughs> no no i'm the record i hope you can make an edit or whatever you felt went on too long no no not a problem because uh, it's it's i think those ramblings are the point where you understand a feel in a better way than any other way because that's your knowledge and that's your experience from your past uh so that's that's there for sure uh thank you so much rushit you have been listening to understanding the future podcast to know more about climate center for cities check out our website www.niua.org/c-q The show is conceptualized, produced, and edited by Punit Gandhi, Senior Associate at CQ. You can now subscribe to our podcast on your favorite channel. It can be accessed through the credits. Also, don't forget to follow us on our social media for more updates. Do share your reviews with us and help us spread the podcast to your friends and colleagues. Do write to us if you would be interested in learning about any specific topics. Thank you and stay tuned for our next episode.